Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our series this Christmas season called Carols for the King. And uh, this has been a real joy for me as I've been looking at some of these classic Christmas carols and thinking about some of the the biblical inspiration behind them. If you were with us last week, we looked at Isaac Watts' famous carol, Joy to the World. We we sang a rendition of it here this morning together. And uh, what a great song. And I heard from many of you this week how how fascinating you thought it was to hear the background and the story of of Isaac Watts' life. Well, today we're going to be looking at another one of my favorite Christmas carols, uh, the song that we just sung during our offering, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Uh, it's such a great song. It's been one of those songs for, for me that every Christmas when I hear it, it, it's just a very reflective, meditative type song. Uh, it, it draws us into the Christmas story and really gets to the heart of, of what happened on that first Christmas night when God broke into this world to reveal himself to us in in this little town of Bethlehem. Well, last week, as we looked at Joy to the World, we saw that Isaac Watts really was inspired to write that song by looking at Psalm 98. And so we spent some time going through Psalm 98 last week and showing where those themes came, uh, where Isaac Watts built those themes into his song, Joy to the World. Now, the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is a little bit different this morning because it wasn't a single biblical reference that inspired this song. It was really the the Christmas story as a whole. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about some of the key ideas that we see in the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And we're going to talk about where these ideas come out of the Christmas story and so highlight some of the biblical themes that, that we find here in this great song. But uh, a little background on the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It was written by a man named Reverend Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks. And Phillips Brooks was the pastor of the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Phillips Brooks was inspired to write this song after visiting Israel on a sabbatical trip. In 1865, he journeyed over to the land of Israel and spent some time touring the land, seeing all of the sites that he had preached about and studied over his life. And he was particularly inspired one evening as he took a horse ride from Jerusalem five miles to the little town of Bethlehem. And Phillips Brooks, in some of his writings and his journals, talks about how inspiring it was for him to ride along these hills and look out over the countryside and see this little town, which was the birthplace of the Messiah, the Savior. And it was a sight, looking upon the village of Bethlehem, that that stuck with him the rest of his life. In fact, three years later, Phillips Brooks was back at his home church, the the Church of the Holy Trinity in Philadelphia. And their church, one Christmas season, was hosting a a Christmas program, just like we had last week with with the kids of our church up here singing praises at Christmas time. And so Phillips Brooks, he wanted to write a special song for the kids to sing at their children's Christmas program. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to get any ideas from this. I won't be writing any music for our kids here. But, uh, but Phillips Brooks was inspired with this idea, I want to write a song about what I saw in my journey to Bethlehem. And so he penned the words to O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, 
Phillips Brooks wasn't a musician, so he, he took these lyrics that he had written to his church organist, a man by the name of Louis Redner. And, and Phillips Brooks gave the lyrics to Louis Redner a week ahead of the children's Christmas program and said, hey, do you think you could write a song to, uh, to go with these lyrics? Well, Mr. Redner was, you know, in the middle of putting together this big kids program. He was in charge of all the Sunday school programs at the church in addition to being the organist. And so he's thinking, man, you know, a week's notice, you want me to write a song? And he said, I'll do my best. Well, Pastor Phillips Brooks came to him the next weekend, Friday, two days before the program and said, hey, have you got that song written yet? And Mr. Redner was like, are you kidding me? I've been swamped. I haven't even had time to think about writing the song. And so Pastor Brooks said, well, get on it. I want this song sung in our children's program this weekend. And so Mr. Redner went home that weekend concerned, worrying about how am I going to come up with this tune for this song. Well, the Saturday night before the program, he was in bed asleep. And according to Mr. Redner, he said it was as if an angel strain started whispering in his ear the tune that would become the song to a little town of Bethlehem. And so he awoke that morning, early in the morning, with this tune ringing in his ear, and he wrote down the music to the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And the kids of the church sang it the next morning. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. In that incredible story, the song was written for a kid's Christmas program. And God supernaturally gave his organist, Mr. Redner, the tune to go with these great words. And it's become a Christmas classic ever since since 1868, when it was written for this children's Christmas program. Well, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, there wasn't a particular biblical passage that inspired this song. And so so what I want to do for us this morning is I want to look at some of the key lines in this song, and I want to talk about how we see those truths illuminated in God's Word, in the Scriptures. So we're going to look this morning at three remarkable truths highlighted in the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The first of these truths that I want to point out to us this morning is that Bethlehem was a little 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 town town marked by destiny. The first line of the song reminds us of this little town of Bethlehem. When I was a kid growing up, my father's family lived out in California, and so many summers we would do road trips out to California to visit my grandparents and my cousins who lived out there. And one of the key landmarks we would often see driving out to California, one of the, one of the last major landmarks that we would notice as we were getting closer to our grandparents' home was driving through the town of Reno, Nevada. Now, if you've ever been to Reno, Nevada, you'll know that as you drive into Reno, there's a big sign across the highway that says, the biggest little city in the world. Reno, Nevada, known as the biggest little city in the world. Now, if Reno's known as the biggest little city in the world, then certainly Bethlehem has to be known as the biggest little town in history. The biggest little town in history. Here in this picture you see on the screen behind me, you get a sense of the the setting in which the nativity story took place. 
This is a picture of Bethlehem, modern-day Bethlehem, and it's still a, a relatively small town. But here you can visit today the Church of the Nativity. You can see where Jesus was born. I've had the privilege of traveling there two different times and, and, and standing where history tells us the Christ child was born in the manger to the Virgin Mary. But you can almost picture the, the green hills behind Bethlehem where the shepherds were tending to their sheep that night when the angels appeared and declared the arrival of the Messiah. You, you can almost picture the Magi from the east traveling through the Judean wilderness seeking out this great king. And, and it was here in this setting of Bethlehem that God would invade human history. It's interesting, the name Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, the house of bread. And I find it fascinating, friends, that from the house of bread would come the one who would call himself the bread of life. In John 6, 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. What was Jesus talking about when he declared himself to be the bread of life? Well, I don't know about you, friends, but how many, how many of you have ever had this experience where you've looked forward to a special Christmas present? You've been excited about, you know, potentially getting something that you've been looking forward to. And, and then you get that special present. And, and after a few weeks, a month or two, a year goes by, and pretty soon that present that you looked forward to so greatly suddenly seems to almost have fled your memory. You don't even think about it anymore. I, I was thinking about this just this, the other day. I can't even remember what I got for Christmas last year. Now, I know I had a great Christmas. We had a great Christmas, but I was thinking, what did I get last year? I don't even remember. Maybe some books. I got some clothes. But I mean, but that's how Christmas often is, right? We look forward to these great Christmas gifts, and yet so often they leave us wanting more. Some of you kids probably know what I'm talking about, right? You get this special Christmas toy that you've been looking forward to, and you open up that toy, and then after a while you realize, wow, that, that toy wasn't everything I thought it was going to be. It's not exactly how they portrayed it in the commercials. And the reality is, is so often, even things like Christmas and the presents we receive leave us wanting more. But when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will never go hungry. What Jesus was saying is that there is one who truly satisfies. There is one who truly never lets us down. And that is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. He is true fulfillment. And again, it's this bread of life who came from this little town of Bethlehem, known as the house of bread. Well, Bethlehem is, is not only famous as, as the house of bread, but it was also the scene of many important stories in the Old Testament. Old Testament history tells us that it was here in Bethlehem that 4,000 years ago, Jacob buried his young wife, Rachel. You can still visit Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem today. It was here in Bethlehem that the setting for the book of Ruth took place. If you remember the story of the book of Ruth, Bethlehem was the home of Naomi and her family, and it was here where, where Ruth gleaned in the fields and fell in love with her kinsman, Boaz. It was here in Bethlehem that Ruth's great-grandson, David, was born. 
And it was here in Bethlehem that the prophet Samuel anointed David as the king of Israel. But surely, friends, the most famous Old Testament reference to Bethlehem is found in a short prophecy written by the prophet Micah in 735 B.C., 735 years before Jesus Christ's arrival, Micah the prophet prophesied these words, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Ancient times can also be translated from eternity. I want you to think about what this prophecy tells us here, friends. 735 years before Jesus arrived, Micah told us that there was one who was coming who would be the ruler over Israel. Now, Israel's had many rulers, so that wasn't anything special. But Micah says there was going to be something different about this ruler. This ruler was going to be one whose origins are from old, from ancient times, from eternity. Friends, there's only one person in history that ever matches that description. And that is the creator of the universe, our eternal God. Micah is saying that this ruler who is coming is going to be no ordinary man. This ruler who's coming was going to be the eternal God from ancient times who was going to come into the world. And Micah declared this prophecy 735 years ahead of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, some people look back at this prophecy today and they think, well, this can't be a predictive prophecy. Maybe the church, you know, 300 years after Jesus, during the time of Constantine, maybe they, they added all of these prophecies into the Old Testament to make it look like Jesus fulfilled these, these great prophecies. And that was a popular skeptic's argument all the way up until the 1950s when an incredible discovery was found in Israel called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Ancient manuscript copies or portions of copies of every book in the Old Testament other than the book of Ruth. One of the manuscripts that they found was a scroll of the book of Isaiah, or not Isaiah, of Micah. And in the scroll of Micah, they found the reference to Micah 5 2. This scroll dates back to 50 BC, 50 years before Jesus Christ. And guess what they found in those words from this scroll 50 years before Christ? They found a reference to the ruler who would come, whose origins were from ancient times, from eternity. This prophecy, friends, goes back to Micah 735 years before Jesus. And here we have textual evidence for this prophecy being known by the people of Israel at least 50 years ahead of the coming of Jesus. Friends, this wasn't a late addition into the Old Testament by Christians writing about Jesus after the fact. All of the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament predicting the coming of the Messiah We have textual evidence for in the Dead Sea Scrolls, predating Jesus Christ. These prophecies were there. They were known. They declared the coming of the King, the Messiah. But what's interesting to to realize is that nobody would have expected the Messiah to come out of this little town of Bethlehem. 
In spite of the, the, the historical examples I shared earlier, the reality was Bethlehem was a small backwater town in Israel. It was such a small town that it didn't even make the list of over a hundred cities settled by the tribe of Judah. If you read in Joshua chapter 15, Joshua, as he led the children of Israel into the promised land, they divided out the land by the various tribes. And Judah, in Joshua 15, Joshua lists the various towns and villages and cities that was allotted to the tribe of Judah. He lists over a hundred towns there, and Bethlehem isn't even mentioned. It wasn't even mentioned because it was so small, it didn't even make the list. No one would have thought out of Bethlehem that this Savior, this ruler, this one from ancient times, from eternity, that he would come out of this small town. And yet it was out of Bethlehem that the most significant person who ever lived would be born. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Jason. Did did you just say that Jesus was the most significant person who ever lived? And friends, to that I would say absolutely. No one in history has ever touched the world like Jesus Christ. Sadly, though, many today take Jesus for granted. And some don't even give him a thought. In our post-Christian culture here in America, some would even mockingly proclaim that there's nothing special about Jesus Christ. But friends, the evidence of history would say otherwise. What is so special about Jesus Christ? You know, when you think about Jesus Christ, he he possessed no certificates nor degrees. He never traveled farther than 100 miles from the place he was born. He lived and moved among the common people. He was not an author. He wrote no books, composed no poems, compiled no documents, edited no papers, nor contributed to any periodicals. The only sentence he ever wrote was a single line in the sand which disappeared that same day. No letter of it was preserved. He never used a pen, a personal computer, a tablet. We have no line, word, or syllable from his hand. And yet, more books have been written about him and his words than any other man. He has affected the lives of more people than all the authors of all the ages. The story of his life has been translated into more than 1,800 languages and is read by countless millions each year and today is still the world's best-selling story. He was not an orator, yet no man spoke as this man. His discourses have become the theme of millions of addresses. His words are simple and clear. Very few adjectives are used, yet his sentences abound with beauty, meaning, and grace. His sayings are hammered into polished marble, chiseled into imperishable granite, wrought into enduring bronze tablets, fashioned in stained glass windows of numerous churches, etched in rich mosaics of temple walls, and set in the arched domes of colossal cathedrals. His words are literary gems. He stands as the unequaled seer of all literature. Shakespeare, Milton, and Emerson all bow their heads in his presence, recognizing a superior. He was not a poet, yet he inspired thousands of poets to utter their most sublime expressions. 
He was not a musician, yet he inspired Mozart, Schubert, Handel, Mendelssohn, and countless others. He was not an artist, not a sculptor, not a painter. He never handled a brush nor wielded a chisel. He was a stranger to the paladin canvas, and yet he was the inspiration for Raphael, Michelangelo, Hoffman, and so many more. He was not a lawyer, yet he knew the law, and he interpreted it for others. He he applied it to the relationships which should prevail among men and women, and he himself became the fountainhead of righteousness. He was not a doctor, yet he healed the sick, opened blind eyes, unstopped deaf ears, cleansed the leper, and raised the dead. He was not a statesman. He never held nor aspired to official position. He did not delve in politics, but he did found a kingdom. He was not a general, and yet he became the conqueror of the world. In war or in peace, in good times or bad, it remains true that no single word grips the hearts of men and women like the name Jesus. To say that history bears his imprint is putting it much too mildly. William Lecky, the renowned historian, speaks without exaggeration when he declares the simple record of three short years of Christ's active life has done more to regenerate mankind than any other influence that's ever been felt on earth. Friends, if anyone doubts this, just let him try and imagine what it would be like in this world of 2018 if suddenly the name of Jesus were torn from us and with it everything for which it stands. Friends, life is hard enough as it is. It would be intolerable without the message of Christmas. It would be unbearable without the song of Easter. See, friends, Bethlehem may have been small, but it was out of this little town that God's divine destiny, the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would unfold. The second remarkable truth we see in our song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Bethlehem was a town shrouded in darkness, but it was invaded by the light. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Bethlehem, in this sense, friends, was really a metaphor for for the entire world. A town shrouded in darkness, invaded by the light. Two weeks ago, my son Caleb was visiting uh, Cost Church just north of town here, uh, participating in a youth program they had there one Friday evening. And at 10 o'clock, I drove up uh, County Road 9 through the dark out into the country to pick up my son Caleb. And as I was driving out through the darkness of the fields north of town, suddenly out in the distance above, a light, a brilliant light flashed across the sky. And I don't know if it was a shooting star or a a meteor or what it was, but this light just came streaking across the sky. And it just just stopped me for a moment. It took my breath away. Did I just see that? It was incredible, this light piercing the darkness. And friends, in the same way, the Apostle John tells us that 2,000 years ago, God's divine light broke into the darkness of our world. 
John says in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John goes on in verse 10, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. John says we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The light has broken into the world. The Messiah, the Savior, the one who came from God full of grace and truth has pierced the darkness. When I was in college and seminary, I spent three summers working at a camp out in California. One summer, my brother and I worked out there together, and and we had driven out there, and and on our way home, we needed to get back to start school, and so we were under a time crunch to get back, and so we decided that the two of us, we were going to drive home from California nonstop. I think we actually made it in like 35 hours or something, driving from California nonstop. But I remember as we were driving back to Minnesota from California together, driving through the darkness, driving through the darkness of of Utah and and Nevada and, and then Wyoming. Friends, there are some stretches out there in the West, the wide open spaces of the West, where you won't see a light for miles and miles and miles. There are no towns anywhere. And I remember as we drove through the darkness on I-80 through Wyoming, we realized that our car was quickly running out of gas. And we began to to be concerned because there was nothing around us. We couldn't see any lights anywhere. And we were watching our gas tank slowly trickle down lower and lower. Suddenly the warning light came on. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And as we drove down the freeway, suddenly out in the distance we saw a faint light. And as we kept going, that light began to shine brighter. It began to illuminate the countryside. We began to see hills, and we could see the terrain around us. That light up ahead told us that there was a town in the distance. That light told us that there was hope. We were going to make it. We were going to be okay. And in the same way, friends, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, shines brightly for all to see. And the light of Christ is a promise to the world that there is hope. There's a way out of the darkness. We don't have to wander in desperation. Now some people hear that and they say, what darkness, Jason? What are you talking about? I'm not lost. I'm not wandering. But friends, that's part of the darkness that we're trapped in as we don't even realize how lost we are. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, we are all blinded. 
What are we blinded by? We're blinded by a spiritual enemy and a spiritual disease called sin, which infects each and every one of us. And friends, if you're not aware of this, your sin is an eye disease, and it blinds you. It blinds you to the reality of the true life that God desires for you. We cannot see it. And, and we wander through life. We think that this life is, is all that it is. And yet there's a God who made us, who loves us, who wants a relationship with us, but we're blinded by our sin to that reality. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. See, that's our problem. That's what we've been blinded to, the reality that we have a holy creator, God, who made us, who desires a relationship with us, but we are so lost and blinded by our sin, by our rebellion against him, that we're wandering in the dark and we don't even realize it. And the problem with this blindness that infects each and every one of us, Paul goes on in Romans six twenty three to tell us that the wages or the penalty of our sin is death. Friends, if you wander in the dark too long, without the light, you will die. It leads to death, physical and spiritual death for all eternity. That's the bad news. But the good news, as we read earlier in John, is that Jesus Christ broke into the world. A light has pierced the darkness. In the distance, as we travel, we see hope, we see light, we see a message that says it's going to be okay. And that's what Jesus came to proclaim on that first Christmas, the light of the world, promising eternal life to all who believe. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you confess with your mouth and believe, believe, and believe in, your, in, your, in your heart Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. You can enter into the light and you can know the real life that you were made for to live in a saving, life-giving, eternal relationship with your Creator God. What an incredible promise we have at Christmas time. What a gift. A little town of Bethlehem, thirdly, tells us this remarkable truth. Here's this town full of hopes and fears, visited by the Prince of Peace. One of the great lines in the song, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You know, friends, in a sense, this line gets to the heart of what life is really all about for most people. For most people, life is nothing more than chasing after our hopes and running from our fears. I hope I can get a good job. I hope I can earn enough money. I hope I can retire sufficiently. What if, what if no one ever loves me? What if, I, what if I get laid off this Christmas time? What if I don't have enough money to afford a home for my family? What if I get sick with cancer? You know, for most people in our world today, life is all about chasing after hopes and running from our fears. But is that really all there is? Is life simply a series of pursuits and worries and at the end of the day, that's all it is? Friends, the reality is, apart from a relationship with the God who made you, that's really all it is about. That's basically all you have to look forward to. Chasing your hopes and running from your fears. 
But you know something, friends? True meaning and true joy and true peace is available to you. It's available to us because of Christmas. It's available to us because the God who made you, the God who gives true life, who gives true meaning, who gives true significance, who gives true peace, came into this world 2,000 years ago so that we could know him and have a relationship with him. One of my favorite prophecies of all of the verses in Christmas is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. Isaiah was a prophet. He was a contemporary of Micah. They were writing at the same time. And here in Isaiah 9, 2 through 6, we see the truth of our song this morning, that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus Christ. Isaiah tells us the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. He's taking that away. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why? Because unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What a great promise to us this Christmas time. Friends, if you want to know true joy and peace this Christmas, you're only going to find it by embracing the one who is called the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why God came. He wants you. He wants to live in a relationship with you. He wants you to know life and life to the full. True peace, true joy, true meaning, true value, true worth, true freedom. You won't find it anywhere but in Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for everything that Christmas means. God, we thank you that 2,000 years ago you were not content to leave us wandering in the dark spiritually blind, lost in our sin. But God, in your great mercy and love, you broke into this world. You invaded the darkness. You shined the light of life so that all of us could see. And Jesus, this was a gift. It was a gift that you offer each and every one of us, a free gift. But just like every gift that we're going to open on Christmas morning in a couple days, you have to receive that gift. And so, Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet received this incredible gift of new life and a relationship with you, that even here this morning they might do so, that they might take hold of that gift, that they might open it, that they might see the light of the world shining radiantly upon them for the very first time. And know that they too can become a child of God and enter into life and life to the full. All because of you, Jesus, the greatest gift this world has ever received. 
I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would draw any of us to you this morning who haven't yet received that gift. And Jesus, for the rest of us who know that joy, who know the hope of Christmas, God, may your light shine brightly in our hearts today, tomorrow, Christmas Day, and 365 days of this year. Lord, for us as followers of Jesus, every day is Christmas because every day is a day to celebrate the incredible gift we've been given. Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for Christmas. In your great name we pray. Amen.